Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Consuelo Mack. Welcome to our WealthTrack webcast. Our focus today is the cannabis industry. If you had asked me even three years ago if I would be covering this on WealthTrack, I would have asked you what you were smoking, and I certainly would have wondered what I was indulging in myself, but those days are over. Cannabis is a global growth industry with multiple applications and products, some positive and some decidedly not. And in an era of socially responsible investing, which we cover a lot on WealthTrack, we cannot gloss over the negative aspects of legalizing marijuana for recreational use, for instance. So our guest today is David Kretzman. He is an analyst with The Motley Fool, who recently switched to The Motley Fool Canada, just in time for Canada's legalization of recreational adult use of cannabis. It is the largest economy in the world to do so. David is now advisor of two Motley Fool investment products, brand new Marijuana Mavericks in Canada and Marijuana Masters here in the U.S., which are both available by subscription, as are all Motley Fool research products. David Cressman, welcome to WealthTrack. To the cannabis industry, how big a deal is this industry? Well, first of all, uh, I'm in a similar boat to you where even going back six months or a year ago, this is the last thing I would have anticipated doing as a research analyst with The Motley Fool. But it's 2018 and apparently anything goes. But part of this really stemmed from the fact that we were getting so many questions on a regular basis from our members, whether it's our listeners on our podcast, members of our subscription services, And especially up in Canada, we knew that our members were going to be buying cannabis stocks with or without us. So Mm -hmm. earlier this year, our team took a step back and we thought, okay, can we apply a capital F foolish approach to the cannabis space? And what I mean by that is applying the Motley Fool's core investing principles of being long-term business-focused investors. And can we apply that to the cannabis space, which on the investing front has really been dominated by short-termism speculation, hype, arguably some scams and some frauds thrown in there. But if we can find some legitimate businesses that are taking advantage of this growing legal cannabis industry around the world, then there actually might be a place for us capital F foolish investors to benefit. So that was really uh, what, what got the conversation started for us. We launched Marijuana Mavericks up in Canada in June, and then we launched Marijuana Masters in the US in October. These are new services for us, but we knew that our members were fascinated by this category. A lot of pe- a lot of members were already investing in this space, so we wanted to help them avoid what we see as some obvious companies maybe to stay away from and try to steer them more toward that capital F foolish approach to the cannabis space. Right. So you at, at Motley Fool are listening uh, to your fellow fools who are all active investors and invest in individual stocks. You're responding to that interest. 
why do you think now that you're in it, <laughs> even though it was yeah. unanticipated as it is for me as well, why do you think marijuana has staying power uh, and the cannabis industry has staying power? Yeah, really for me, our entire hypothesis is that we're at the early innings of a large, legitimate, legal cannabis industry forming around the world. I really think that Canada is the first domino to fall. You have uh, many countries in Europe uh, and around the world at least dipping their toe in the water with uh, medical cannabis. Uh, here in the U.S., obviously, we have numerous states that have embraced recreational cannabis use, like uh, California and Colorado. Uh, well over 30 states now ha have legalized some shape or form of medical cannabis. So for us, it's really just a matter of this is almost an inevitable trend uh, that, that the world is embracing a legal cannabis industry from a jobs perspective. It makes sense from a medical or healthcare perspective when you're looking at potential medical uh, uses for, for cannabis, whether it's treating rare forms of childhood epilepsy or an alternative to, to opioids, which of course we're seeing uh, rampant abuses of that uh, across the U.S. So with, with the medical applications, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, from the recreational perspective, I, I think more and more uh, people are on board with the idea of treating uh, cannabis similar to how we treat cigarettes or, or alcohol, uh, where it can be a regulated space, but keeping it as a criminal or an illicit product hasn't necessarily been all that effective uh, from a law enforcement perspective. Uh, it, it takes a lot of law enforcement resources uh, to, to keep it uh, an illicit product. So right. I think we're still just in the, the early stages of uh, countries around the world and states and territories around the world embracing legal cannabis. So. That's the, the initial hypothesis that we went into uh, with the yeah. Motley Fool. And, and with that said, of course, we recognize that not every company that's touching cannabis today will be a winner. You know, it, being able to just grow and sell cannabis. It. Right. It, it's not a, a green or a golden ticket, so to speak. Uh, it, it's not uh, – you need more than just uh, growing and selling cannabis, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. So Right. A lot of the companies today, we have over 100 companies that are publicly traded in North America that are somehow involved in, in the cannabis industry. I think it's fair to say that a lot of those companies probably won't exist in a few years. So you're going to probably have a few of those companies that do end up being the eventual winners, but you have a lot of companies that just fail to gain traction uh, and, and will just fizzle out and disappoint a lot of investors along the way. So that gives you a higher level view of how we're looking at the industry. Right. Let me ask you about kind of the, the backdrop as well, as far as the legalization is concerned, because uh, one of the things that you uh, pointed out in your presentation, and I, uh, which I really was excellent, the uh, Marijuana Masters uh, that you've re released recently, uh, is Thank that you. cannabis does have a history in the U.S. And a century ago, um, you know, you had a neat picture of a, a lily, Eli Lilly product. It was selling a cannabis extract, for instance. And then you also pointed out, you fast forward to the 1970s and the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, named cannabis a Schedule One substance. And that's, as you pointed out, right up there with heroin and ecstasy versus lesser, you know, Schedule Two drugs like meth, cocaine, and opium. Again, this is from your uh, your marijuana master's presentation. So um, what happened that suddenly, you know, that cannabis, marijuana products were out there and okay, and then it, it became this, you know, the toughest uh, drug category that you can have. 
Yeah, it, it's a fascinating history. So if you go back to the 19-teens, the 1920s, uh, like, like you mentioned, you had some of the pharmaceutical giants of the day, like Eli Lilly, I think Pfizer, uh, th- they would be selling cannabis sativa products on the shelf to, to treat various ailments. Uh, there's, I, th- I think there's a lot of cultural aspects to it. There could have been some, some racial components to it. I, I think a lot of uh, people in the 30s associated cannabis with Latinos or, or Mexicans who were coming into the U.S. So that, I think that was, that's part of uh, the, what, what caused kind of that right. anti-cannabis, anti-marijuana movement. In 1937, there was a, a Marijuana Tax Act uh, which essentially just, it wasn't actually criminalized, but there was such a severe federal tax levied on cannabis that it just wasn't feasible uh, to grow it. So that was like the initial step into prohibition. But funnily enough, during World War II, uh, the federal government, the USDA, actually put out a film called Hemp for Victory. And hemp is, you know, uh, related to, to cannabis. It is a cannabis plant. And the USDA was actually essentially putting out a propaganda film encouraging as many U.S. farmers as possible to grow as much hemp as they could for the war effort to make things like canvas and rope and other uh, supplies uh, for the war effort. So for that brief window in the 1940s during World War II, it was legal and even encouraged by the government to grow hemp. But then going to the 1970s when he had the Drug Enforcement Administration established and they had these different schedules of drugs, Uh, Like you mentioned, cannabis was put in that Schedule 1 category, which was really the most severe listing for the substance. And that's really where it's been uh, for the past 50 years or so until uh, very recently, we actually had the Drug Enforcement Administration for the first time in 46 years change its stance on cannabis by rescheduling a drug called Epidiolex, uh, which was developed by a UK-based biotech called GW Pharmaceuticals. This is a biotech drug uh, that's based off of cannabis that treats a rare form of childhood epilepsy. So it was unanimously approved by the FDA and the DEA in September rescheduled that one drug from Schedule 1 to Schedule 5. And what that means is that doctors in the U.S. will be able to prescribe epidiolex to patients in the U.S. and patients will be able to use that drug. So that's a huge milestone for the industry within the U.S. So what's what do you think the outlook is? Because uh, cannabis is still a level one drug, right? According to the the DEA, is is that correct? I mean, there's this one exception for medicinal use, but um, yes. is it still a level one drug as far as the federal government is concerned? Yeah. So within the U.S., it, it's a fascinating right. but very murky legal picture with a lot of gray area. So on the federal level. Cannabis is still considered to be the harsh among the harshest substances out there. Uh, so cannabis is still a Schedule One drug on a federal level, but in the meantime, you have uh, well over 30 states that, within their own borders, have kind of defied the federal government's stance on cannabis and legalized cannabis in some shape or form within their own borders. So California right. was an early pioneer in the 1990s, starting to embrace medical marijuana. Uh, and then you had more states slowly but surely over the past couple decades and really accelerating in recent years, typically starting with a medical cannabis program. And then within the past five years or so, you've had other states like uh, Colorado, Washington, California jump into a recreational cannabis market. And currently we have nine states in the U.S. as well as uh, the District of Columbia that have legalized recreational cannabis in some shape or form. So 
that does present some challenges. Typically, uh, banks don't really want to associate with cannabis companies in the U.S. because they, they could still be pressured by the Justice Department or the federal government if they have any association whatsoever with a cannabis company. So as an example, if you walk into a cannabis dispensary in the U.S., and mind you, this is a legal cannabis dispensary, uh, you can't actually buy cannabis with a credit card <laughs> because the credit card processors uh, won't support cannabis because it's still considered an illicit drug on a federal level. So you have to pay with a debit card or with cash. So that's just one example, but all the way through the cannabis value chain, you have a lot of uh, speed bumps uh, as a result of the federal government's very anti-cannabis stance still today. But you do have more states that are doing what they can to open up the legal cannabis industry. But that's a fascinating ongoing uh, right. battle and evolution within the U.S. So what, what are, what's your best guess as to how this is going to resolve itself, and especially the, obviously the outlook for change at the federal level? Sure. Well, obviously, we just had the midterms uh, here in the U.S. Uh, right, we midterm had elections. States, yeah, the midterm elections. And we had three states uh, as part of those midterms that uh, embraced cannabis. So you had Missouri and Utah go to medical cannabis, legalizing medical cannabis. And you had Michigan, which has been medically legal, uh, vote for a recreational market. So those are three more states that are progressing with a legal cannabis industry in some shape or form. But then on the federal level, you had some key developments. You have uh, Congressman Pete Sessions, who was voted out, and he was someone who, within Congress, was uh, really limiting any cannabis legislation from even getting to the floor of the House. So the fact that he's voted out really, I think, opens the door for the federal government, uh, at least within Congress, to take more action. I think currently we have about 50 uh, bills with some form of cannabis legislation in them. And all of a sudden, it looks like they'll have more of an open door to progress through um, the House of Representatives and the Senate. And then even on an executive level, you have some interesting developments. Uh, Jeff Sessions, who right. was the previous attorney general uh, for the Trump administration, he had been a very staunch cannabis uh, opponent. And he, he resigned very shortly after the midterms. So again, that, that opens the door for the federal government maybe to... Uh, for, for someone to step in who's a little bit more friendly to the idea of the federal government stepping out of the picture when it comes to cannabis. And even President Trump himself has never actually spoken out against the idea of legalizing cannabis. Uh, one of the primary bills going through Congress right now is called the States Act. And it, it really is one of the few bipartisan issues out there. I mean, the, the majority of uh, Americans, whether you're on the left or the right or in the middle, typically support medical cannabis. A majority of Americans now even support recreational cannabis. And many Americans also support the idea of just leaving it up to the states. So what the States Act does, it would essentially take the federal government out of the picture and just let the individual states decide what they would want to do. President Trump this summer mentioned that he would probably support the States Act if it does get through uh, the Senate and, and crosses his desk. So I think federal legalization or federal decriminalization of cannabis is going to happen a lot sooner than people think. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some major steps that direction as soon as 2019. Uh, but I would say by 2020 or 2021, certainly, uh, I would be surprised if the federal government hasn't taken some, some pretty big steps to embrace legal cannabis on a national level. 
let's talk about it. It sounds like a minefield from an investment point of view, um, because you know you're you'd be investing in companies that can only sell their products in their state, right? They're limited by. So that limits their growth. They're limited by geography, local regulations, as you said. You know, banks. I mean, as far as the credit availability, um, there are uh, there are so many obstacles. Um, and yet, is the potential going to be realized more um, when all of these issues are resolved and we get something like the Stakes Act passed, or? Um, are there opportunities, do you think, now uh, to actually invest uh, you know, very early on in this industry? Well, I think that, that what you just said there is key, that, that we're still talking about a very early stage industry and a lot of very early stage companies. So we've been very upfront with our members within both of our cannabis recommendation services, whether in Canada or the U.S., that these are probably the riskiest and most volatile stocks that the, the Motley Fool has ever recommended. Because you're talking about companies today that don't have much of a track record because most of these companies legally haven't been able to exist or even sell anything for any much longer than a few years in most cases. Uh, and then you also just have uh, companies or, whose share prices are being priced not based on present-day fundamentals or a track record because they typically don't have much of either of those, but instead the stock prices are being priced based on future hype and future expectations. Right. So, you know, it, the, the share prices of cannabis companies to, to an extreme degree compared to most stocks are really just priced based on the emotional whims of the day. So if people are really optimistic, share prices will spike 10, 15 percent in a day. And it's not uncommon for share prices to drop 10 percent or more over the span of a day or two. So you really see volatility taken to a whole new level. So we really wanted to be upfront with our members that. While we do agree that this is an exciting space and we do think there will be some big eventual winners over the short term and over the next year or two, volatility is inevitable. And of course, that's true of any stock, any industry, but to an even more severe degree when we're talking about cannabis. But looking at the U.S. landscape in particular, uh, certainly the, the federal government's current opposition to cannabis represents a bit of a dark cloud uh, mm -hmm. and a bigger question mark for the space. Uh, and it also means that each state is essentially its own siloed cannabis market. So if you want to sell cannabis in California, you have to buy or grow cannabis in California. You can't grow cannabis in Colorado, ship it to California, and then sell the product. So you essentially have to be vertically integrated in each state. So you have a lot of companies which are called multi-state operators or MSOs, so companies that will operate in several states, but you have some companies that are doing everything from growing the cannabis to processing the cannabis and making the end products like oils or edibles or beverages, whatever product forms uh, those might be. Then they're also operating the retail dispensaries. Uh, so, so you have companies that are doing a little bit of everything, but they, they have to build that vertical operation Right. In every single state that they want to operate in. So it's an incredibly inefficient business model. Uh, I, I was touring a company in Colorado, uh, Dixie Brands, a company that's going public in November. Uh, and, and the guy who was giving me a tour, he's operated in the industry for uh, several years. And he was just telling me that, you know, cannabis is by far the most inefficient industry I've ever operated in. Because even within the states where it is legalized, there's probably no industry that's as severely regulated as legal cannabis in some of these states, uh, just when it comes down to tracking the cannabis, 
every step of the way from seed to sale. Uh, so it's a very expensive, labor-intensive process right now. There's not a whole lot of automation that goes into making the products uh, or just automating any process in the value chain. So what's unique about the, the cannabis industry today is that you really have an industry that's starting entirely from scratch. And I know I'm bouncing around a little bit here, but if you go back no, no, to it's fascinating. Alcohol- because, it, I mean, the industry is all over the place, and that's your point. It is incredibly inefficient. It is siloed. Um, you know, it's just, it's kind of overwhelming uh, what all of the, again, challenges that the industry faces uh, at this point from all different fronts. So this is great, uh, David. It's very interesting. Go ahead. Awesome. Yeah, and, and I think what's especially fascinating here is that there really hasn't been anything else in U.S. history, or probably even world history, We've never seen an industry quite develop like this. I'd say the closest comparison that we can think to, especially in the U.S., is alcohol prohibition, which happened between 1918 and 1933. So you essentially had 15 years where alcohol was under prohibition on a federal level. But what's different about alcohol prohibition compared to cannabis prohibition, which has happened over the past 80 years or so, before 1918, you had companies like uh, Miller, uh, uh, Anheuser-Busch, you had the established alcohol companies with the, the infrastructure to produce, process, and brand alcohol. And then for those 15 years where alcohol was under prohibition, they just had to make different products, whether it's non-alcoholic beverages, ice cream. The companies had to be scrappy and figure out alternative non-alcoholic products to sell. And then for those 15 years of prohibition, that's exactly what they did. But oh, interesting. As soon as alcohol prohibition ended in 1933, they were really able to almost seamlessly get back into the alcohol business. And they already had the infrastructure. They already had the brands. So it wasn't, obviously it was a disruptive 15 years, but they still had the, the legacy infrastructure and brands and expertise to apply that same model that they had used before 1918, after 1933 with, with alcohol. Where cannabis is different is that we're talking about an industry that's been under prohibition for almost a century. So you don't have any legacy companies in the space that have operated. You legally haven't even been able to do any sort of research and development or medical testing on cannabis until very recently. So you truly have an industry here starting from scratch. So from the investor's perspective, uh, right now you're dealing with a lot of companies that are saying, how great they're going to be. Every company today is saying that they're going to have the best distribution, the best brands, they're going to be the lowest cost producer, they're going to have the highest quality cannabis. And none of these companies really have much of a track record. So as an investor, you're kind of stuck having to look at the qualitative factors for the most part. You're trying to uh, get a better sense of the company's leadership, uh, trying to wrap your head around the business model, the strategy that they're employing. And what we're trying to do at The Molly Fool is figure out which companies are most likely to, first of all, even be around three years from now? Do they have the right. cash? Do they have the expertise? Do they have the strategy that we think raises the chances that they'll still be around three, three years from now and hopefully be a thriving, profitable player over the long run? So we're always applying that long-term, multi-year time horizon to the space. Um, right. And so I, because, I know in, in, in Marijuana Masters, in that presentation, you had you know, that there's a right way and a wrong way to invest. And Motley Fool does have you know, criteria. So 
Uh, you said you're, you're trying to figure out who's going to survive and last and have a business model long term. But, you know, so what what are the what are the criteria uh, that you're applying? And I, I know some of them are from David Gardner's rules breakers, right? Or rule breakers criteria to just yeah. explain what they are when you're looking at this space. Sure. So so like I mentioned, I think the, the qualitative factors are first and foremost, because in a lot of cases, that's really um, the lens that you have to look at this industry. And, and I should say that we're also approaching this similar to a venture capitalist or an early stage investor. So recognizing that if, if we buy 10 of these cannabis stocks, and we've recommended 12 or 13 cannabis stocks, depending on which country you're buying the product in. So we recognize that out of those 12 or 13 stocks that we've recommended or that we've bought, probably safe to say that at least half of those won't pan out the way we expect. Uh, companies just won't gain traction to the degree that we hope or think that they could. Uh, and if, if they're not able to gain traction over the next year or two, whether it's in Canada or the U.S. or somewhere else around the world, uh, then it'll probably be tough for those companies to raise money uh, alongside other companies that will probably be succeeding in capturing market share and building those uh, consumer brands within cannabis. So we're approaching it like a VC, recognizing that a small number of eventual winners will likely drive the majority of the long-term returns and more than make up for the inevitable losers within cannabis. So that kind of gives you a higher level framework of how we're looking at this space. Right, so and that's, that's looking- a typical... Uh, I mean, Motley Fool approach, a portfolio approach where, you know, you're going to have some really big winners and those are going to be, you know, make all the difference in the performance, right? Absolutely. Yes. We always recommend with whatever approach or industry or types of companies you're looking at, we're always recommending a diversified approach. So in this case, especially when we're talking about such early stage, riskier companies like cannabis, taking that diversified approach and also recognizing that these cannabis recommendations that we're giving are all in the context of a diversified portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we're actually looking at individual cannabis companies, I'd say those qualitative factors like uh, a company's leadership, uh, their, their business strategy, we're not just trying to find companies that are growing and selling cannabis. Because at the end of the day, although cannabis is highly regulated, it is essentially, for the most part, just another crop or what right. will probably become more of a commodity. Uh, in, in some states that, that legalized cannabis within the past several years, like Oregon and Washington, you saw the price of cannabis plummet because there are so many companies trying to go after that green rush and trying to grow and sell cannabis. So just being a wholesale seller of cannabis isn't really that compelling of a business to us. Uh, but instead, we're typically trying to focus on companies that are doing something to develop consumer facing brands, because with most industries, the companies that capture the majority of the value will be the companies uh, that are directly interacting with uh, consumers on a regular basis. So like one way to think about it is that you have other crops or commodities out there like coffee, tomatoes, hops, but off of those commodities, you have powerful, dominant global consumer brands like Starbucks off of coffee, Heinz off of uh, tomatoes, then Anheuser-Busch or Coors Light or any of those alcohol producers off of hops. So that's the the type of company that we like to find companies that are focused on building the the distribution and the brands within the cannabis space, because we think that's probably going to be 
a, a more attractive long-term business model similar to other industries. So, And do they exist the, now? I mean, those the kinds of companies that are doing this, these customer, consumer face, you know, interface uh, products, that they, they actually exist now. There, it depends what market you're talking about. Yeah. So within California and Colorado, states that have legalized recreational cannabis, it is easier for companies to be creative with branding and packaging and marketing compared to Canada, which on October 17th became the largest country to legalize cannabis or recreational adult use of cannabis on a national level. In Canada right now, uh, it's very difficult to build much of a brand. Uh, recreational cannabis has to be sold in what's really just plain, nondescript, almost medical type packaging. You can only have a small logo on it compared to a market like California or Colorado, where there are far fewer uh, restrictions when it comes to packaging uh, the colors and branding that you can have on your products. Uh, and then it also comes down to the types of cannabis that you're selling. So currently in Canada, the only type of recreational cannabis that you can sell um, is dried flour. So that's a type of flour that you roll up into a, a joint or a cigarette. And then you also have oils. So the types of things that you would put under your tongue and get that high effect. But currently in Canada, you can't actually buy a cannabis candy bar or the edibles or a cannabis-based beverage. Whereas in some markets in the U.S., like California and Colorado, you can sell a variety of product forms, almost right. anything under the sun, whether you're talking about the edibles uh, or beverages or other similar products. And I think it's going to be far easier for companies to build a brand off of those product forms like beverages, like edibles, because those will be almost more traditional consumer packaged products as opposed to just the dried flour, which I think it's harder to differentiate uh, on a product level when you're talking about something like flowers or oils. So in, in some states in the U.S., it is easier to build some of those consumer-facing brands. Uh, Dixie Brands is, is one of the companies I mentioned earlier. They're still private, but soon going public. Uh, and they're really entirely focused on building uh, those consumer-facing brands, they're not growing or even processing uh, the, the cannabis. They're only focused on those branded products. And then some of those multi-state operators, they are doing the growing and processing and distribution of the cannabis, but they also have oftentimes retail storefronts. So MedMen is an example of a company that uh, has uh, you know dispensaries in Las Vegas, New York City, Los Angeles, San Diego, really high-profile cities. And, and they're doing essentially everything along the, the, the cannabis value chain. They're vertically integrated, but they also have that branded retail experience. And then they have some of their own brands within those stores. So typically, I'm most interested in the companies that ha have an eye toward those long-term brands. And, you know, it, it's, it can be a double-edged sword because at this point, sometimes to sell a cannabis product, you also have to grow the cannabis, which longer term, right. growing the cannabis probably isn't all that attractive of a business model, but at this point, it's almost the price you have to pay depending on what market you're in. But yeah, in general, though, looking for those types of companies that are facing the consumer as much as possible. David, let me ask you about a couple of the companies that you mentioned uh, in your presentation to Motley Fool members, Marijuana Masters, uh, and that was in the U.S. for U.S. members. And one of them was Kushko Holdings, U.S.-based. Tell us about that. Right. So within these services, cannabis investing recommendation services that we've launched at The Fool, we're looking really everywhere, but primarily North America. So these would be companies that are based in the U.S. or based in Canada. 
And we're also looking for companies that are kind of the ancillary picks and shovels providers to the industry. So companies that might be supplying the industry or have some sort of ancillary exposure to the cannabis boom that we're seeing. So Kushko Holdings is an interesting company. They're based in California, and they're really trying to supply every uh, step along the way of the cannabis value chain. So they're they're selling everything from packaging products and the bottles and uh, everything that uh, cannabis products will be uh, uh, displayed at in mm-hmm. dispensaries or in the retail stores. They're also supplying hydrocarbon gases to uh, the, the processors. Hydrocarbon gases are used to extract oils from the plant, and those oils are then what are used uh, to, to manufacture those edibles, beverages, whatever those end products may be. So Kush is an interesting company because they really benefit regardless of which of these cannabis companies win out. They're, they're currently already selling to over 5,000 uh, companies in the U.S. Uh, they recently expanded into Canada as well. And one of the factors that I didn't mention uh, that, that we'd like to see with these companies is a high degree of insider ownership. Ideally, we'd like to see uh, uh, founders who are still with the company and still have a healthy stake in the company themselves. Because if, if a founder or a CEO of a company that's only been around for a few years doesn't have a good ownership stake of the company themselves, then why should we as investors uh, right. give hard-earned dollars uh to those companies. So that's a, that's a similar approach that we take and Kushko Holdings probably has among the highest insider ownership of many of the, the cannabis related companies that we've looked at. It's close to 50% of the shares that are owned by insiders, including two of the co-founders who own about 30%. David, another company that you've mentioned to Motley Fool members is Namaste Technologies, which is a Canadian-based uh, cannabis company. What's the story there? This is a, a company based in Canada and they're really trying to be your everything cannabis store. And they're really focused on the e-commerce cannabis experience. So today they operate 32 websites in 20 countries around the world. And primarily what they've been selling are vaporizers, uh, which is essentially an, an alternative way to smoke cannabis, as well as some other cannabis accessories. But within Canada, they've uh, launched a telemedicine app. Uh, for the medical cannabis market up in Canada. So it's an app called Namaste MD. So if you're looking for a medical cannabis prescription, rather than going to a brick and mortar clinic and going to a nurse or a physician who you're not sure if they're really on board with cannabis yet, or you're not sure if they have a stigma with it, or you're just not comfortable having that physical interaction with a medical right. professional. What Namaste MD will do as a telemedicine app is you, you can virtually connect to a licensed nurse practitioner uh, get your prescription, and then you can order medical cannabis directly through uh, Namaste's website through a variety of medical cannabis providers up in Canada. So Namaste is an interesting company. Again, I like that e-commerce angle uh, th- that they're applying. They already have you know over one and a half million registered users on their websites around the world. So as more countries come online with cannabis and maybe uh, loosen up the rules a little bit so cannabis can be bought online and uh, other cannabis-related products and accessories can be sold online. Namaste seems to be in a pretty interesting position. And looking at the leadership angle, they actually have a pretty impressive board of directors for what's essentially about a $500 million or so small-cap company in Canada. Uh, they have the former chief information officer from SpaceX, and they also have the product manager at Waymo, which is Google's self-driving car division. So 
for me, it's like, okay, you have two heavy hitters in the technology right. space who could probably serve on just about any technology board that they wanted to. And of all companies, they both decided to sit on the board of this small cap uh, cannabis e-commerce company based in Canada. So I wouldn't buy or sell based only on that decision, but certainly from a qualitative perspective, I'd like to see that the company has attracted talent like that to the board of directors. Um, right. Then, there's, there's, a, there's a, I mean, another, I mean, caveat for investors, you know, we're talking about these companies, but, um, you know, there are restrictions on where they can be traded. And I mean, how, you know, how big a problem is, is that of, you know, what yeah, exchanges will allow? It's, it's a huge problem, right? Oh yeah. It, it's a, it's a big wrinkle. And again, a lot of it stems from the U S federal government stance on cannabis. So, the major exchanges like the NASDAQ and NYSE in the U.S., and then the Toronto Stock Exchange and the TSX Venture Exchange in Canada, they will only allow cannabis companies to list if they're selling cannabis in a territory or country where it's federally legal. So at this point, you do have some Canadian producers who don't have any business in the U.S. They have been able to list on the U.S. exchanges like uh, Canopy Growth, Aurora Cannabis, Kronos Group. These are all some of the bigger Canadian companies by market cap that have been able to dual list both on the Toronto Stock Exchange and some of those bigger exchanges in the U.S. But in the meantime, you have U.S. companies that are going public on a smaller and more obscure exchange up in Canada called the Canadian Securities Exchange, sometimes jokingly referred to as the Cannabis Securities Exchange. <laughs> and the reason that the, the Canadian Securities Exchange or the CSE will allow U.S. companies to go public is the CSE basically says, we'll let you list on the CSE so long as you're operating in a state where cannabis is legal. So that, that's a little bit of a workaround for the CSE to have more uh, activity from U.S. companies looking to tap the public markets and get that liquidity that comes with being a publicly traded company that they that U.S. companies really can't do in the U.S. because of that federal overhang that, that continues to loom. So it is a bit of a murky situation. Canada and the U.S. are very much tied to the hip, <laughs> whether they want to be or not. Right. Uh, so right now you have a flood of U.S. companies through this year and through the rest of the year that are planning to go public up in Canada on the Canadian Securities Exchange because they're not able to do so on the exchanges because these major exchanges really just don't want to overstep their bounds when it comes to the federal government. So that presents a bit of a wrinkle. Taking a step back, I, I do think the U.S. opportunity is more attractive. Uh, to, mm -hmm. to frame it up, the, the Californian cannabis market today is probably bigger than Canada's cannabis market ever will be. And that's just one state. And then you have uh, the other issues with Canada where you're limited to only a few product forms that you can legally sell currently. Right. Uh, you're also, you also have far more branding restrictions up in Canada compared to markets like California and Colorado, which are bigger markets. You can sell multiple product forms. Uh, you, you can do much more in the way of branding and developing that relationship with consumers. So even though it is a bit of an inconvenience to... Uh, from an investor's perspective, to, to be looking at this smaller exchange up in Canada, uh, I think the U.S. companies increasingly will get the majority of the attention from the media and investors because in the long run, the opportunity in the U.S. is just on a, on a far bigger scale than Canada ever will be. Right. Let me ask you just a couple more questions. And, and again, this is so comprehensive. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. 
um, and all of it, as you said, there are so many wrinkles uh, that this is my complete ignorance about um, marijuana and cannabis. But there is a difference between CBD um, and THC, which is the, the psychoactive compound that gets you high. The C- CBD is, uh, is medicinal, right? Oils and capsules. So, I mean, how big a market is that? And what about the cannabis with THC, which, again, is you know, what gives you that high? Yeah, so so you essentially have it right, where CBD is the non-psychoactive ingredient right. uh, that, that comes from uh, the, the compound that comes from the cannabis plant. So CBD will typically be used to treat anxiety, uh, to, to treat uh, pain, uh, to help people sleep, different things like that. And CBD can actually be purchased in all 50 states. Uh, typically, you can buy it online. There are various CBD-focused uh, suppliers. Uh, but then on the, the THC side, that is the psychoactive ingredient that gives you more of that euphoric high effect. Right. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, the, the actual research and development that's been able to happen with cannabis has been fairly minimal uh, up until very recently. So we're still in the early stages of companies even being able to, to test how these compounds can work. And maybe if you have 30 milligrams of CBD and one gram or milligram of THC, maybe that's a, a better effect than 15 and three or whatever the, the ratios might be. So you have companies that are now in the early stages of going through more trials, testing different uh, product forms, different compounds, different ratios, and all those different things to see which products or, or which forms are most effective for certain cases. So uh, that, that's, that's the direction you see a lot of companies going, but it's important to remember from an investing perspective and just looking at the business landscape that we're still in very uh, kind of uncharted territory when it comes to cannabis because over the past 80 years or so, there wasn't a whole lot that we could do with the plant or even study and learn about the plant. So uh, th- I think that opens up an exciting opportunity for uh, companies that are looking to develop branded products. If you can develop uh, alternatives to traditional pharmaceuticals like opioids uh, and, and have a more effective cannabis-based compound, whether it's CBD or THC or a combination of both, that could be incredibly disruptive to the pharmaceutical industry. And I think an important example of that is within Illinois, where in August, a uh, Republican governor signed into law the Alternative to Opioids Act, which essentially means that if you're a patient in Illinois who's been given a prescription for opioids, you can now use that prescription to buy medical cannabis. And that opens up a market of millions of patients within Illinois, a state where over the past year, about 8 million opioid prescriptions were prescribed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're already seeing state governments and even to a small degree on the federal level with that one epidiolix drug that I mentioned earlier, you're starting to see more governments recognize that, okay, maybe there are actually some really strong medical benefits here where you, you can treat different uh, ailments or issues with cannabis without having the same negative side effects that you might see with traditional pharmaceuticals. So again, we're still in the early stages there, but I think yep. longer term, that's one of the, the areas where there's a ton of potential for disruption. 
the, the flip side of that, you know, I've talked to professionals who are treating addiction and the ones that I've talked to are dead set against legalization of recreational use of marijuana because we are now beginning to see uh, the damage to young brains, you know, being proven and it is a gateway to other more powerful drugs. So, you know, your view, uh, you know, at The Motley Fool of the societal consequences and again, you know, we're talking about uh, you know, conscious capitalism and socially responsible investing. And uh, is, is that a discussion that you all are having? And do you have any thoughts that you'd want to share with us? Sure. No, I, I think it's a, a very important discussion. I think from the investing perspective, obviously, you want to invest with your conscience. And if, if cannabis doesn't really fit your worldview, or you're not comfortable with the industry for whatever reason, then certainly you shouldn't feel pressured to invest in cannabis, just as you shouldn't feel pressured to invest in any given company or industry. Uh, as our co-founder David Gardner says, your portfolio should reflect your best vision for the future. So for some people, I think cannabis sits front and center in their vision for the future. For some people, maybe they don't necessarily agree with it. So it's going to be different for each person. And I absolutely uh, respect that. I think most medical professionals that you'll talk to will say tobacco and alcohol are typically as dangerous or as harmful or even more so than cannabis. Obviously, what I mentioned earlier, it is a double-sided coin because we haven't really been able to research cannabis to the same degree that we've been able to research and study it with those other psychoactive substances that are legal. Uh, so th there likely will be some, some negative consequences that we learn about of the plant. And I think that's really important to get a sense of what are the long-term effects of, of cannabis use? How, is, how does it differ if you're ingesting it by oils versus smoking a joint? <laughs> and, are, are certain uh, consumption formats uh, more harmful than others or more useful than others? So those are all very important things that we need to learn. And thankfully, with cannabis increasingly becoming legalized, we're able to study and, and research all those different issues. So I think that is uh, critical. But again, from the medical side, I think most people, uh, regardless of where you fall politically or ethically on the issue, most people, I think, are increasingly on board with the idea of at least enabling people, giving people the choice to access medical cannabis. And you are seeing uh, more healthcare professionals, more governments uh, like, like Illinois, and increasingly even the FDA and the DEA recognizing that there are proven medical uses uh, for cannabis. So really, I think at the end of the day, it does come down to, to research and studying uh, the plant, the drug, the different substances. And thankfully, with this legal climate, uh, that, that, that we're seeing with cannabis, I think we'll, we will see a flood of research that happens there. And that's incredibly uh, important. And I think it's also important to recognize that just because cannabis can be used in a harmful way doesn't necessarily mean that keeping it criminalized is all that effective. You know, mm -hmm. the, the U.S. Uh, experimented with alcohol prohibition for 15 years, and I think pretty quickly uh, recognized that even if we have people who are ethically opposed to consuming alcohol, like I personally don't drink or consume uh, cannabis or alcohol. Uh, but keeping it under prohibition isn't all that effective. Uh, and, and you saw that the federal government change course pretty quickly when it came to, to alcohol. And right. Like I said, I think a lot of people would say that alcohol is as damaging or even more damaging uh, than, than consuming cannabis. So that's typically how I fall on it, but completely respect that cannabis stocks aren't going to be for everyone, whether it's for ethical reasons or you're just not comfortable with the volatility. But I think uh, 
from a societal perspective, it is a positive thing for us to embrace legal cannabis and to research uh, a plant which so far has shown some early uh, progress to being able to treat some serious medical issues. David, uh, at the end of every wealth track conversation, we always ask our guests if there's one investment that we should all own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio, what would it be? Do you want to take a stab at it? Absolutely. So again, with a precursor that any cannabis stocks that you buy are ideally are part of a diversified portfolio, and ideally you're buying a diversified basket of these cannabis stocks. But I think if you're just dipping your toe in the water with the cannabis space, I would look toward a picks and shovels company uh, like Constellation Brands, which isn't a company that we've talked about yet, but is a very key player in the industry. People might be familiar with uh, the Corona beer line, uh, which is one of many uh, alcohol and spirits brands that are within Constellation Brands' portfolio of brands. Uh, Last year, Constellation Brands made a sizable investment into Canopy Growth, which is one of the larger cannabis producers in Canada. And then in August, Constellation Brands re-upped that investment in a huge way by investing an additional $4 billion into Canopy Growth. And just for some perspective there, uh, in the first half of 2018, every cannabis company, public and private combined, had raised $4.3 billion. So in a single day, (laughs) Constellation Brands invested $4 billion into a single cannabis company, essentially making Canopy Growth the cannabis offshoot of Constellation Brands. So going forward, uh, Constellation Brands will have the majority of the board seats of of Canopy Growth. They'll be able to acquire majority control of Canopy Growth down the road if they want to do that. And the reason I like Constellation Brands from an investment perspective is I think it's one of the safer ways to get some healthy exposure to cannabis because they're one of the stronger alcohol producers or alcohol brands companies out there. They're continuing to gain market share. They're gigantic wines and spirits and they're multinational and yeah. Exactly. Yes. This is a global multinational company, about a $40 billion market cap. Uh, They pay a dividend. Uh, uh, their, their free cash flow is increasing, revenue continues to grow. So this is a company that has a strong core business, which is something that we look for in a picks and shovels uh, company for cannabis, where the core business is healthy and growing and flourishing. And then the cannabis opportunity is really just the cherry on top. And I think with Constellation Brands, I think in the future, they'll be able to apply their expertise with uh, selling a, a regulated branded product like alcohol, they'll be able to apply that expertise over to the cannabis industry down the road. And essentially, they've set aside a $4 billion war chest with Canopy Growth that they'll be able to focus exclusively on the cannabis space worldwide. Uh, And it's also a company that's basically family run. They have a couple brothers heading up the company. The insider ownership is high. So it has a lot of the traits that we look for at the fool with any business. And then they also happen to have this growing opportunity with cannabis. So I see Constellation Brands as one of the safer ways to start a cannabis portion of someone's portfolio. And then from there, maybe you can start to look at the riskier companies. But I think a great place to start is with Constellation Brands. So thanks so much for sharing the research with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. So I also want to thank our audience uh, for joining us as well. And to hear this conversation again, if you missed any of it, you can go to our website, wealthtrack.com. And as always, make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.